we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. And coming up in our first segment of Buffalo What's Next, we're going to revisit a question we've touched upon a few times on this program already. When it comes to racial justice, how can the arts help? Can the arts make a difference? I have with me my guest this morning, who I believe already has her answer ready for that one. That's Shirley Verico. She's the curator at Buffalo Art Studio. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jay. Thank you for having me here. Uh, did I guess correctly that you believe that arts can help in this conversation? I absolutely agree. You know, we have seen in our space the power of the arts to affect change. Um, and we've seen throughout history. That's why we study art history. It is a powerful tool to tell stories. And the role um, I believe that the arts have right now in this moment is to make certain that the stories that are being told are uh, stories that promote racial justice, that they are representationally just, meaning we're including artists of color, we're including artists who may have been left out of these conversations, and that we are including their artwork in the galleries and museum spaces and the murals and the public art spaces and the educational spaces that make up our community, because that is the best way to uh, create a just society is to make certain that we're including these voices throughout our society. Interesting, though, that you started off by saying that's why we study art history. Right off the bat, it flashed in my mind what I thought art history is about, which I think many people think about. If you if you went to a liberal arts college, you may have uh, had to take an arts elective, and maybe you took art history, and maybe you uh, uh, dropped out of it in two weeks. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you're saying, though, that maybe, and maybe, again, that's something that we're overlooking, that art history is, again, more than just um, a dozen names from each century over over the millennial. Well, I think if there's anything we're learning in this moment, this 2021, 2022 moment, is that history is far deeper than we have often been led to believe, right? History is told by the powerful. Um, one of the things I taught art history for a number of years at area colleges, and I often started my class with the statement, art history is not the history of what was made. It was the history of what was preserved. Mm. And one of the wonderful things that are happening in our academic environments is recognizing that we need to broaden that canon dramatically to go and look at the objects that were made and to look at people who are making objects, making images, making film, music, art, etc., that have been excluded actively. Um, one of the big mind shifts that happened for me uh, as a curator um, in the last decade was recognizing that the pursuit of justice is an active pursuit. It is not passive. It's not simply not showing stereotypical images. It's not simply avoiding cliche. It's about actively pursuing inclusive, just, and um, and diverse voices within whatever 
field that you are you're studying. And I definitely I had a chance to visit the uh, Buffalo Art Studio uh, about a week or so ago, and I definitely did see some of the artists who have studio space there that are doing just what you said. And I want to get into that, but but, but let's get back to uh, the original uh, reason why I invited you to come here. The Buffalo Art Studio is having a panel discussion this Friday. I'll read the the name for us. It's Making Space, Creative Strategies for Promoting Ecological and Economic Justice in Urban Planning. That, within itself, caught my attention. But what really caught my attention is the panel. You have Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor, Jr., who mm-hmm. we know from UB's uh, Strategic Urban Planning uh, Institute. Also, Denise Barr, who is uh, the head of the uh, Fruit Belt Homeowners Association. Then Justina Jama, who is an architectural design student who also did a, a presentation or had a, a, uh, some work at uh, the Buffalo Art Studio. Matt Kenyon, who is an artist and also currently has uh, art on display, uh, a, a part of an exhibition at the Art Studio. So uh, what I'm saying here is, boy, we've got a different group of four people here for a panel discussion. What could we expect, I guess, since we don't know exactly what's going to happen? Well, um, as I mentioned, we have been uh, using this model at Buffalo Arts Studios for about five years now of bringing together diverse voices around a broad subject and letting the conversation occur. Um, We learn so much every time we do this, and we tend to do them about two times a year. And what we've found is really helpful is, again, bringing uh, an artist, certainly central, because we are an arts exhibition space and a studio space, but then bringing in um, political activists or grassroots activists such as Denise. She's living this experience of trying to revitalize her community with a consciousness towards ecological, economic, racial justice. Um, And then, as you said, uh, Dr. Taylor is an academic who has a strong theoretical basis in this information. He's done a lot of studies. He's very, very knowledgeable. And then Matt Kenyon, who is a professor at the university and an artist, um, you know, he is addressing these issues through his art making. So we bring these people together. um, And when we bring these people together, we also bring their networks together. So the audience will have some professors, some artists, some studio artists, maybe from our community, but also some neighborhood activists. And so all of these experiences come together. And what we have found is they produce just fascinating conversations and a lot of really important networking, all within a gallery space. And then again, um, my executive director, Alma Creo, and I, we learn so much and it will shape, I'm confident, the event that happens Friday evening will shape our programming in 22, 23, 24. We, we take away so much um, from this incredible panel as well as the community that will attend. It's interesting to hear you say that and talk about the idea that you have these uh, disparate points of view, for lack of a better term, all coming together. So often on this program in the last couple of months, we've heard people say, we have to have a place where we can get together, where we can exchange these ideas so we can all find one language to talk about the issues that really plague this community to a a large extent. Uh, So, But you're saying, though, that you'll take this information now, what you see and what you learn, and this is going to vault you forward as well. There's lessons that you anticipate learning here that are going to make a difference for Buffalo Art Studio for a year, two years, five years to come. Oh, absolutely. I I always learn a lot. Um, I think when you learn to listen then you learn. 
And that's part of what has to happen, I think, across our community, whatever the topic is, is to make certain that we're bringing together different voices. Um, to me, that's what representational justice is. Certainly in an art gallery, in an art space, it's about artists bringing together diverse art voices. Um, but I think community-wide, that's where we can all benefit. And we really work hard to make Buffalo Art Studios a safe space for diverse voices. And that means that we have to be welcoming all the time. We're open and free to the public five days a week. And, you know, I sit out there, you you know this, I sit out in the gallery <laughs> and I smile and welcome people when they come in because everyone needs to feel welcome in our space and needs to feel safe in our space. And it's, you know, it's, it's 20,000 square feet. It's a lot of space. It's 30 active making artists, three art galleries, classrooms. There's a lot of ways people can come into our space and be part of our community. And we really do mean that when we say it's a safe and inclusive space. And um, we work very hard. We work very hard to maintain that um, that atmosphere and that authentic relationship with our community. And when it comes to it, uh, just to uh, answer the obvious, Friday's panel discussion, free and open to the public. Free and open to the public. It's part of M&T Bank's uh, fourth Friday at Trimaine. So they sponsor us along with several other institutions. Everyone's got their week of the month. We are the fourth Friday. And um, we stay open with extended hours on the fourth Friday of every month through M&T Bank. So this panel discussion, yep, it's free and open to the public. The uh, We stay open past five. That gives people a chance to come in to look at the artwork and to um, maybe network a little bit. The panel starts promptly at six. I, uh, <laughs> I run a tight ship. And then I do end it promptly at seven. I know there'll still be interesting conversations, but I want those to shift from a panel audience format to an individual group conversational format so people can network, exchange contact information, get to know somebody perhaps tremendously unlike themselves and hear a perspective that maybe they didn't read in a book or in a news article, that they are going to hear something from another person about another perspective. And as I said, I know I'm going to learn a tremendous amount. I'm hoping that everyone that attends does learn a lot about maybe someone or something or someplace they didn't know very much about. We're talking with uh, Shirley Verico this morning, curator at Buffalo Art Studio, uh, talking about their panel discussion coming up this Friday. We'll talk a little bit more about that and some of the specifics before we uh, say goodbye to, uh, to Shirley. But we want to talk about I want to talk about the two artists mm -hmm. that are on here. And since you were, were putting out the, the public... Uh, uh, encouragement to come down to the Buffalo Arts Studio. You can see Matt Kenyon's uh, yeah. exhibit, which um, let's I'll put it this way: it says a lot about housing. Absolutely. So Matt Kenyon and Jason J. Ferguson um, are two artists who have been looking at the role of home as uh, and the domestic space throughout their work as a as a collaborative, and. Um, so the work that we have in the exhibition right now, it's in one of our two galleries, is called Homing. And some of the work was a response to the COVID uh, pandemic and being literally, like so many of us, almost exclusively uh, you know, uh, confined to our homes. But Matt Kenyon is also an artist who is, his work is very much rooted in social and economic and ecological justice. And the main uh, sculpture in the, in the exhibition is a set of... Um, champagne glasses stacked into a um, almost nearly pyramid. And he has formulated um, little plastic houses and he was able to find a material with the same um, light refraction index as water. So what happens is as the glasses are filled with water, the houses disappear. You can't see them, but they're there. 
And this is called Kicking the Ladder, and it is a um, revisiting of another work that w- was very well known called Tide. And in these works, Matt Kenyon is deliberately speaking to the impact of uh, global climate change, um, as well as, uh, you know, market speculation on frontline communities. It is often, as we saw just in the, the hurricane last month, that it is those who are poorest, often um, black and brown communities, which are most uh, greatly impacted by the kind of climate crisis we're seeing in um, you know, rising tides. So that's what the piece is about. Um, and it's really quite dynamic. It's stunning and striking. And then as you think about it, it's it's just so true. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's also, if I'm not mistaken, that he also has personal experience when it yeah. comes to a severe weather event yes. impacting his home life. Yes, his, his family was from Baton Rouge. He was just actually home in Baton Rouge this past week, you know, visiting um, his childhood home where a lot of his artwork was uh, from his earlier part of his career was damaged in 2016. So this was, you know, he saw it firsthand uh, what can happen um, with the climate crisis. And, you know, there's an interesting, I think, tie even to our own community. There is a sign that he's made out of a, a hydrophobic material, meaning so that it repels the water, and it says, we buy houses. Mm. You know, that ubiquitous sign of speculation. Um, and I think something we all know all too well, and I think probably Denise can certainly speak to this, is that the people that are putting those signs up are not looking to, uh, you know, cultivate community relationships. They're speculative, and they are looking, and they're extractive. They're looking to um, purchase these homes and rent them out with no real connection to our community and no real uh, conscious towards our community. Uh, almost predatory. Yeah, yeah, I think so. The other artist that will be on the panel is Justina Jama, mm-hmm. and. I struggled with my introduction because when I think of her, I had a chance to talk to her. She couldn't join us here today, um, but she is in the world of architecture. But what she presented for your studio uh, some time ago was kind of an offshoot of that to a certain extent. Talk about what she went about doing in Buffalo's east side in terms of examining and showing us what some of the architecture was all about. So Justina was part of our 2020-21 um, exhibition cycle, and she was um, she was in residency, which means we were able to give her a studio for six months, and during that time, she researched the East Side neighborhood, and what she was looking at was the ways in which um, buildings deteriorate, and her process as an artist is to create, she creates a, a latex that she literally paints onto the surface of these buildings, and she lets it cure for a, a period depending on the weather and the environmental situations. And when she peels it off, uh, it reveals what she calls a millimeter of space. This, um, she, It does take off some of the residue, some of the building material. I often uh, explain it to people as anyone who's ever put Elmer's glue on the back of their hand <laughs> right, and peeled right. it off and they can see the pattern of their skin. Um, so these become these objects, which were quite large, oftentimes you know somewhere between 7 and 8 feet by maybe 9 or 12 feet. Um, they are these eerily beautiful skins almost of these exteriors. And what Justina did was look to the cycle, which is really the story of Buffalo, the rise of this neighborhood uh, at the turn of the century. We had factories being built because of the railroad that runs past Tri-Main. So you had factories, and then you had immigration coming in to work in the factories, and those immigrants built their churches. In that case, many of them were um, Germanic and Polish 
uh, immigrants. So they built Catholic churches. Um, they also built breweries and you know celebrated their culture. And then what happens in the 60s and the 50s is the changes in economic policy that um, not only allowed, but in many cases encouraged the loss of industry here in Western New York and in Buffalo. So the industry leaves. We have redlining, which we know uh, dramatically impacted the east side. And then you have the immigrate uh, population move out. They move to the suburbs. We have the African-American and immigrant community that's much browner um, move into that neighborhood. But now there is no industry. So the factories decline. The churches decline. The housing declines. And what you have left are these these uh, structures. And that's really what Justina's work was about. And it was really interesting to see, as I said, the objects that she creates, they are hauntingly beautiful. Um, they really focused, they, they live in this space artistically. You're not sure, is it a sculpture? Is it a painting? Is it a print? Right. Uh, it's difficult to label them. But also the response to them. They are beautiful, but they are a little disturbing and they're haunting. Um, and they're very, very powerful. And unfortunately, her exhibition was during um, COVID. So not enough people, in my opinion, got to see the work. But it was really interesting. And she did the research. She is an, an academic in that regard. So um, she learned a lot about the buildings. She did the she did what we like to call the, the legwork. She right. got to know the owners. She didn't just go into a neighborhood and start slapping up the, the, the latex. She found the owners. She learned about the history of the buildings. She learned about... Uh, the legacies, and who was working to try and revitalize and rehab them. So the work that she did wasn't simply the creating of the object, but what we call in the art world the performative quality, the, the performance part of it was the getting out into the community, getting to know the owners of the buildings, getting to know the neighborhoods. And in the end, it was a really uh, a powerful exhibition. And in speaking with her, and she said this, and I thought this was an interesting way of looking at it, here in Western New York, especially in Buffalo, we've become very big about preservation, which mm -hmm. is which is great and has given us and saved many mm -hmm. jewels of architecture here in the city. But at the same time, in these East Side neighborhoods, these some of these structures have become modern day ruins. Oh, absolutely! And we have people, a large section of people, mostly black, mostly poor. Who are living among the ruins mm -hmm. of the East Side, and that, that has struck me as as being a very powerful lesson of this particular effort. Yeah, and I think again, I, I come back to this: you can't really, um, you can't take apart the um, economic and the ecological. A lot of these ruins are full of toxic materials. You know. We're living, we, we have a whole section of our population, again, frontline communities, living in neighborhoods where deteriorating building and the debris is in the air. You know, every time a, a stiff wind comes through and, you you know, there are these particles that are moving through their environment, um, you know, it's, there is an aesthetic conversation about the beauty or the history of these buildings, but there is a real economic impact, too, um, into what is going into the ground, what is going into the water, what is going into the air, as these buildings um, are allowed to just, uh, you know, essentially fall, as you said, into ruin. Shirley Barrico is our guest this morning from Buffalo Arts Studio. She's the curator, and uh, this coming Friday they have a panel discussion. By the way, you haven't mentioned that Buffalo Arts Studio is on the fifth floor of the Trimane Center. Right? Yes, we yes, so forgot, yeah. We forgot should, about that. We should Which say that. Which is a great space overall, the Trimane Studio. I mean, 
the whole Trimane complex is just a, a magnificent structure uh, right in the heart of Buffalo. Yeah, and you can really see um, it was one of the first industrial rehabs here in Buffalo, and the owners were wonderful. They started with what they called an arts-first approach. Buffalo Arts Studios was one of the original tenants when the Trimane Center was rehabbed from the abandoned Trico plant, and that was part of what Justina's project related to, the story of um, the east side, the story of Buffalo, is the story of Trimane. But you can see what rehab potential done thoughtfully and um you know, with an eye towards social justice. And, uh, you know, you can create a dynamic community center, and the Trimane building is that. You see uh, over 100 businesses right now. I think there's very little um, empty space within the Trimane Center. But, yeah, we're in the, we're in the fifth floor. Um, we are 20,000 square feet in the 600,000 square foot Trimane Center. I like to tell people there's plenty of parking. I know you see that people see that Main Street address and they get a little bit nervous, but it is all off of Helbert, which is the street that runs behind the Trimane building. That's where the main entrance is. So there's plenty of parking. You just come on in the main entrance uh, off of Helbert, go up the elevator to the fifth floor, go left until you run out of left and you found us. Nice, nice. And uh, when you get there... Uh, there are artists who have their studios there. Correct. And this is where I wanted to get into a few of these because we did uh, – you were kind enough to, to show me some of their work. And I want to get into it because these are now – these are black artists mm -hmm. in the city of Buffalo that are doing really powerful work. And a lot of it relating to the issues at hand right now that we're talking so much about. Uh, Julia Bottoms was one that you had a, uh, shared with me. Talk about her work a little bit. Absolutely. So Julia Bottoms is what we are, we call them a studio artist. So Buffalo Art Studios is three facets. We have an education program. So we have classes for adults and for children. Um, we have the exhibitions program, which we've been talking about. And then we have studios, safe and affordable studio space for working active artists. And we have 30 studio artists. And again, when we talk about representational justice. We're very mindful about making certain that our artist community is reflective of our larger Western New York community, including racial diversity. Uh, Julia Bottoms was introduced to Buffalo Art Studios through one of these panel conversations, oh, okay. um, I think uh, six or seven years ago, one of our first, and it was about accessibility. And she was one of the artists, as, at that point, what we would call an emerging artist. She was young, uh, just out of school at Buff State. And we really listened when she spoke about some of the hurdles and some of the barriers for where, young where, artists. Where were they? So, and for young artists, particularly young artists of color, it was really came down to three things. I mean, it was a long conversation, but we sort of boiled it down. One was money. They needed the um, money to buy supplies and materials to make uh, a, enough work for a large solo exhibition. You know, Buffalo Art Studio is big. Uh, a handful of paintings from undergrad isn't going to do it. Um, they also needed curatorial support. So once one is out of school, sometimes it's difficult to find a community to help guide your work. And lastly was marketing support, that it was very difficult for young artists, particularly young artists of color, to get any coverage about their work. So we um, listened to Julia, and we went to another organization, Open Buffalo, and 
um, at that time worked with them to create what we called the Open Buffalo Emerging Artists Series. And um, basically, Open Buffalo matched the funding that we were able to raise to double what we were able to pay artists and marketing and curatorial relationships. Um, and that program continued for three years, during which time we were able to raise the rest of the money to raise that level of support for all of our artists. So that's how we met Julia. Um, we've shown her twice now, once five years ago, and then again this fall, and she has her studio with us. And Julia Bottoms is a star for lack of any better way to say, um, her work is incredibly powerful. And it is rooted, again, in this idea of representational justice. She is a young woman of color. Her friends are creative, young people of color. And she was, you know, really um, exhausted by seeing these images over and over again, particularly of young men of color as violent and aggressive and young women of color as hypersexualized. Um, so she paints her friends and people she gets to know, and they are... Um, as you saw, large-scale paintings in the tradition of what we would call a history painting or even an icon, a religious icon, um, the kind of uh, paintings that were reserved for people who are very wealthy or very important. And she creates these stunning portraits, and they're quite timeless, so she'll integrate maybe um, something that feels like a medieval costume, but then also the contemporary jewelry or uh, tattoos or nails of the, the model. Um, and they're really powerful. And the exhibition, the work she's working on now at Buffalo Art Studios is going to be part of a major exhibition at the Birchfield Penny um, Art Center in, uh, I believe, in mid-2023. I'm not certain if the exact dates are set. You said, uh, the, like, how did you say, curatorial advice? Is that mm -hmm. how you described it? And help? Is that something that comes from, from you then? Yep. Are you, so how are you then guiding someone like, like Julia Jung? Shows a lot of talent, a lot of passion for key issues. How do you, where do you, how do you take that conversation with them and kind of help them along? Yeah, so a lot of it starts by listening again, learning. What is it that they're really trying to do? Helping them refine and maybe focus. And then sometimes it's as simple as saying, yes, this is exactly what you ought to be doing. Or maybe do a little less of this. Um, it can also be sometimes reminding them, um, of when they've gone far enough. I think sometimes when you have artists that are working so hard, um, for the current exhibition that Julia's working on, she was thinking about some pretty elaborate um, framing systems. And I said to her, and she doesn't have to listen to me, I just said, I think the paintings are so stunning and so gorgeous. I don't think you need this. Let the paintings speak for themselves, you know. Um, and again, it's, you know, I, I am a curator. Uh, Julia was the one that coined the name for me, the Buffalo Art Mom. <laughs> so as a, as a mom, I know that there's, they're only going to listen to some of what I say. <laughs> and uh, that's my curatorial style. And I say that to all the artists. You know, I have lots of ideas. You don't have to take any of them. But ideas breed ideas. So if my idea pushes maybe you in one direction and that works for you, fantastic. Um, but that's really my my curatorial style. Was uh, Julia involved in the Freedom Wall? Julia was, along with um, Adris Wajet, who was a former Buffalo Art Studio studio artist. He left us because he went to graduate school, and the University of Buffalo gave him a, a free studio. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so he was part of our um, our studio as well. He's also He had a major exhibition in um, the summer of 2020 with Buffalo Art Studios. So absolutely, Julia is also an activist. She's working... Um, she was just at the History Museum on Friday night. She's working on a commission of um, a life-size sculpture of Shirley Chisholm. 
that will go to Forest Lawn. So she's really a, a star um, and, and just such an incredibly talented person and also a really, really wonderful person. I would encourage anyone, if you ever have a chance to hear her speak or get to know her or come visit her studio, I really can't um, say enough lovely things about her because she's really just a, a really terrific person. I wanted to talk about a couple other artists, but sure. we're, we're time is uh, is running short. I want to make sure that we get back to uh, the panel discussion yes. because I, I think this is a type of conversation that's happening in front of you. Like I said earlier, you know, we've heard this on this program several times. We have to have a place to have these conversations. Well, Buffalo Art Studio could be that place on Friday. The panel discussion is called Making Space, Creative Strategies for Promoting Ecological and Economic Justice in Urban Planning. Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr., Denise Barr, Justina Jama, and Matt Kenyon will be on the panel. Shirley Verico will be the uh, the moderator of this particular panel discussion. What should we expect? Um, well, we should expect, hopefully people come in and they're very moved by the exhibitions when they arrive. Um, and as I said, we'll start to get everybody seated by 6 o'clock. And we'll have a brief uh, introduction of each of the individuals so you can understand where they're coming from, those people that are that are in the audience. Um, and then we're going to start some questions. Where are we right now in this process? Uh, I think a lot of people... Um, are interested in some timelines. I don't know how for many of those uh, are. Uh, and just who are some of the voices that are being um, shut out maybe of this conversation versus um, you know, some of the voices that are being heard? And how can the arts, how can creative placemaking um, be part of this? And I think uh, you know, there are a lot of artists that are, are working towards um, some healing types of activities and images on the east side, and I think that's wonderful. Um, and we're just going to have a conversation about where does that kind of uh, spirit lead, you know, lead us, and how do we make certain that the arts are included in what's going on on the east side, but that it is also um, artwork and architectural work that is responsive to the voices of that community as well. You know, nothing about us without us. That, that's something that we keep. Uh, at Buffalo Art Studios, we remind ourselves of that often, that we want to make certain that the people who are going to be impacted by whatever it is we're talking about are included in these conversations. And then the final question, since uh, May 14th, um, have you seen, observed in some of the artistic, whether it's discussions or work that you've seen, things that are reflective? Do you sense an energy that's reflective of the tragedy that happened and the response to it? You know, it's not, yeah, well, yes, absolutely. Buffalo Art Studios is not very far um, from the top site, and we have a strong connection to the community. Lenny Lane from Fathers has been a longtime partner for Buffalo Art Studios. He was one of those men that was out there with uh, a barbecue and hot dogs and hamburgers and, you know, coming up to Tri-Maine and collecting boxes of produce, immediately responding. Um, Julia Bottoms, who uh, was going to do a, a public mural for a fundraiser for us, shifted and did a mural that will be gifted to the community. Um, so we do we do see that. And, you know, there are some artists that responded in very real time, very quickly. And then there are others who are really thinking about it. Phyllis Thompson, who is a artist who is in the collection of the Albright Knox. She was part of the Northland exhibition. She is prepping for an exhibition, hopefully in 2024. She's gone to the site. She's taken photographs. She's looked at the materiality. Her work is very much about memory and memorializing. So some of the, the artist's responses are immediate. 
Um, they want to do something right away. Um, and others are going to take more time to process, just like I think everybody. Some people felt the need to react right away, and others felt like they needed to take some time to process. So I think it's not surprising that that's happening within an artistic space as well. Shirley Verico, uh, curator at Buffalo Art Studio. You can join her and her fine panel for a panel discussion coming up this Friday at Buffalo Art Studio, fifth floor, the TriMain Studio. TriMain Center, right? TriMain Center, yep. that's right. Uh, six o'clock. Si- yeah, well, the panel starts at six, but we, we start talking at six. Okay. So <laughs> you can come, <laughs> come earlier. Early. Or, and and it, is, it is a bit of a, a trek. I tell people it can be 10 minutes from the parking lot on Halbert to the front door of TriMain, or to the front door of Buffalo Art Studios to give yourself that time. All right, very good. Shirley, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having us. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. The popular WNED PBS Our Town series is now on YouTube. Explore our region's towns through the eyes of community members who captured them on video beginning in 2003. Debuting this week is Our Town Lockport, featuring Reed's Drive-In, the Town of Lockport Nature Trail, and the Palace Theater. Head to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel to watch and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Our Town. WBFO is your home for trusted news about your community. And WBFO The Bridge connects music and community. Hear local music from bands like Farrell from Buffalo, Tedesco Knows Best from Niagara Falls, and Stress Dolls from Buffalo every day on WBFO The Bridge. Listen at WBFO 88.7 HD2 or WNED 94.5 HD2 or stream it from WBFOTheBridge.org or the WBFO The Bridge mobile app. Watch the WNED PBS original production, The Adirondacks. We've come closer here to a, a working balance between the natural world and the human world than just about any place on Earth. The Adirondacks, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. Hey, have you seen WNED PBS's Compact Science or Shakespeare's Greatest Hits? Here's five reasons to check them out. Compact Science is so fun, high energy, and educational that it won three prestigious awards, a communicator award, a telly, and an award from the New York State Broadcasters Association. And Shakespeare's Greatest Hits also received a communicator award and a telly for cinematically portraying some of Shakespeare's best monologues in bite-sized videos. Check them out at WNED.org or on YouTube. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And I'm host Thomas O'Neill White. And with me today to talk social justice and STEM is small business owner Malik Stubbs. Malik, thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Black boy joy. What does that mean to you? And how do you express it? Um, I mean, black boy joy means um, just happiness. Um, Happiness within myself within my culture, within my community, um, having pride where I come from. Um, I mean, coming from the east side, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, issues that happens, 
but finding ways to navigate through the issues and try to be a positive impact on the community is kind of a way for me to find joy. So that's how I will give the example of Black Boy Joy. How do you navigate these issues? Because there are, there are, as as we have seen over, especially the last eight five to eight months or so, issues plaguing the East Side. Um, how do you navigate? How do you yourself navigate those issues? Um, honestly, it's with good mentors. Um, good mentors like gives me like the wisdom that I need to um, stay out of trouble. Um, find ways to be a leader in my community and they connect me to resources so I could like create opportunities for others. You're very active with a number of youth oriented programs, including breaking barriers and uh, STEM teaching at the Delavan Greider Community Center. Um, you've also been working with the Greater Buffalo Racial Equity Roundtable uh, following the tragedy of 514 on, on social justice training initiatives and healing circles. Can you get a little bit into that? Oh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, with Breaking Barriers, uh, we're launching a new initiative, Racial Healing Circles, where we're going to different community centers, talking to people about trauma, resilience, and how they've been since the 514 shooting. Um, unfortunately, I mean, as young men, um, we don't like to express our feelings. And we hold a lot of things in that needs to be out. And I think that, I mean, with the healing circles, it allows us to learn things about each other, like things that we normally don't talk about. And I feel like at the beginning of the, the circles, Everyone is like just strangers, but by the end, it feel like they became my family. They understand where I come from. They understand my lifestyle. So honestly, this is needed in our community, and I hope this can really impact the East Side a lot since the five fourteen shooting. And again, I wanna uh, I wanna send a shout out to. Tommy McClam and Daniel Robertson of uh, Break the Breaking Barriers Group, please, please come on our show. <laughs> um, what what does a healing circle look like when you get together with this group? What what it what does it look like? What are you guys talking about? Oh, so a healing circle looks like basically um, just a group of like people in a circle, and what we do is we set guidelines. Like, for example, we have a talking piece. So when someone has the talking piece, that's when that person talks and everyone listens. If you don't have the talking piece, you can't talk. And what we do is we make sure that all the information is confidential. So, like, nothing can't leave the circle. Mm -hmm. uh, everything has to stay there. And what happens is like, we talk from our heart. I mean, it's a lot of things that we face as people of color that we don't like to talk about. But honestly, it's okay. Because it's just that it's better to get it out of you than hold it in. Because it's just that, I mean, to be honest, we all face the same trauma. But we just don't know about it because we don't have an opportunity to talk about it. Five months after 514, you 
are from that neighborhood. How are you feeling about it today? Um, it's, I mean, I'm still hurt because it's just that 10 innocent African-Americans died on that day. And it's just that, honestly, I mean, they weren't my family members, but they were kind of like my extended family members because um, we knew some of the victims. We knew Deacon Hayward. Uh, he was the jitney driver that took my mom from Tops to her house. And, like, my family don't have a car. And it's just that it's very, very grateful that we had someone who went out their way to help my mom um, get her groceries, take her back to her house. Um, and it's just easier for me because, like, sometimes I don't have, like, the time to help my mom with everything. But to have, like, someone to support my family like that um, is someone who is a true hero to me. And your your mom lives in the neighborhood around Tops, and she shops there every day almost, That uh, you said. Um, how is, how has she felt about going back in there, and how, how do you feel about uh, stepping foot back in the Tops? I mean... Honestly, um, it's hard not to think about what happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest, it's just that, I mean, when I think about going to the grocery store, I think about a happy experience. But going to that Tops, I mean, that happiness is not there anymore. It's just that no matter how long from 514, you always want to think about the 10 innocent people who got killed that day. And it's just that, I mean, it's, I think it's like, I think it's just, it's just going to take time for me and my mother to have that, you know, that normal feeling. But to see the support, especially with the remodeling of the store, it helps a little bit, but honestly, um, it's still takes time to fully heal are, are you surprised at all that that there are some people in the community who say ah, they shouldn't they shouldn't have reopened the tops i will never set foot in there ever again i mean you got to think about this i mean the east side is a food desert we only have one grocery store and it's just that it's people who have pre-existing conditions that need fresh produce just to stay alive if they didn't reopen the tops, how will these people get their fresh veggies and fruits? And I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, I mean, to really think about reopening after this tragic event. However, I mean, the need of the community is still there. And I think that, I mean, I mean, yes, it's, 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 it takes, it takes time to, you know, recover from 514. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you were actually filmed with your mom going going into the tops as part of a, a In the Works documentary through NBC. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so NBC News came to Buffalo, um, the social justice unit, to um, film me and my mother about our experience since tops was closed. And 
it was a remarkable opportunity because we had the we had the chance to tell the story, like our story. I mean, the story where people who are not normally on TV has the chance to, you know, like speak their minds. And like a lot of people don't understand that. I mean, my mom has a disability. She walks with a cane to go to Tops Market. And it takes her a long time to get there. So normally how we get to the grocery store, we have to catch an Uber. And the Uber is like normally like 12 to $14. And that's expensive for someone who comes from a low-income background. Mm-hmm. In addition to having to go and buy groceries. Yeah, buy groceries. And I think that, I mean, I mean the, the story highlights people with disabilities and how much of a struggle it is to get to the grocery store. So I think it's a story that needs to be told. And also it um, has breaking barriers, a group of young men, of color who came together to form a healing circle to talk about how we are trying to be resilient since the top shooting. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and I'm talking social justice and STEM with small business owner and college student Malik Malik Stubbs. Malik, you volunteer yourself a lot around town, and and part of that work is at the Delavan Grider Community Center, uh, teaching STEM to children in the community. How did that come about, and why is it important to teach uh, these fields to kids from underserved communities? Um, I feel like, I mean, as a product of of just the schools, the Buffalo Public Schools, I feel like yes, I had. A lot of education but I didn't have a lot of skills and I think that with my program we focus on skill building where basically students will learn something and they can actually use it to help them find a job without getting into a lot of debt to go to college and, um, w- walk us through a class that you that you would or do you teach are you the hands-on like that yeah what does that look like so like, here's some examples. So, so I teach students how to, you know, build holograms from a cardstock paper. I teach students how to do surgery on their mobile phones. And when I say surgery, I mean like <laughs> virtual surgery yeah. on a virtual patient. It's not real surgery. But I think that like if kids could learn how to play, I mean, if kids could play video games, They should play video games that help them learn skills, skills that benefit their careers and skills that expose them. And another thing is I teach kids how to build websites because everybody needs a website. Websites, especially since the pandemic, is the way how we, you know, do business. Mm -hmm. So if we could teach kids how to code or, or maybe build a website through WordPress, they could gain a skill that they could use and make money quickly. Yeah, it's kind of like establishing a brand for yourself. Yeah, definitely. You also have a social justice program uh, through International Prep. Yes. So we're launching a social justice initiative um, at um, International Prep, um, BPS 198. 
I'm training a bunch of young people how to be social justice leaders because, I mean, young people are the future. And I think that, like, we need to teach them things about, you know, gentrification, redlining, food deserts, so they could be exposed to them early. So when they become adults, they could plan solutions to fix these issues. And these are high school kids and, and, you know, maybe more aware of, you know, race, gender, religion, ethnicity, economics than, than previous generations of teenagers. Um, what has it been like working with them? And, and can, you, can you give us some examples of uh, parts of your curriculum? Oh, definitely. So, I mean, it's been a pleasure uh, working with students. Um, what we are doing um, right now, we are using digital skills to make a public service announcement about basically getting people to vote, especially like young people. Unfortunately, there's not enough young people voting because, number one, they don't know like what is a primary, what is a general election, what is a Democrat, what is a Republican. Um, they don't really know the candidates at all. They don't know the polling places. So we're trying to use, you know, like our STEM skills, you know, to educate people about social justice topics. And what we're doing is we're going to use the videos, post them on social media, and that's how we're going to get the younger audience to be aware. Because, honestly, young people like me, we don't read the newspaper. We wait for, you know, the Facebook posts, the tweets, the Instagram posts. Mm-hmm. That's how yeah, that's how we communicate. That's how we process information. So if we could use digital media, post it on social media to advocate on issues that affect our community, then we could educate a whole bunch of people, not just in Buffalo, but all over the world. Do you consider yourself an activist? Yeah. I mean I consider myself an activist because, number one, um, I have experienced a lot of, like, trauma in the community. And I think that someone has to find a way to, you know, fix those problems. Um, Number two is that I was mentored by a lot of great leaders that were civil rights activists. I, I even, like, went to Baltimore, Maryland, and intern at the NAACP National Headquarters. And in that internship, I was like on the first defense of civil rights. I was definitely helping out um, the youth and college division, um, organize protests, uh, lead a convention that talks about voting rights, uh, also making people aware about um, just certain issues. Like, for example, uh, when I was in Baltimore, Maryland, I went to Howard University to learn about the Flint water crisis. And that's like a big issue that a lot of people are not aware of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still an issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still an issue. Uh, and it's happening and on Mississippi as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just that how can people, you know, expect to live without clean water? Water is the most kind of important element that we have. And I think that we have to find ways to make people aware. And I feel that, honestly, as a young person, we can't wait. 
we have to take the lead right now because honestly we are the future and we have to find ways to make an impact to help our current generation and help prepare the next generation you're pursuing a master's degree in organizational leadership from Madai University. How do those two things, activism and leadership, come together for you? Does one lead to the other? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, honestly, um, I mean, a lot of people say um, leaders are not born, leaders are made. And honestly, I agree with that. I mean, um, I mean, sometimes that through sometimes it it takes time to be a leader. Um, but because I was surrounded by good mentors, I learned leadership firsthand and I was introduced into activism by my mentors. Like I started off like working with my block club on Victoria Avenue where we did neighborhood cleanups. We actually created a community garden, which and the I've food, been there. Food desert problem mm-hmm. in Buffalo, because like in Central Park, we don't really have like a grocery store. Like we have like you know like corner stores, but we don't have a grocery store that sells fresh fruits and veggies. So me and a couple people on our in our community, we established the Victoria Community Garden to help end that problem to bring fresh produce in our communities. And also, it's just that, I mean, it's a huge problem in the schools where basically a lot of people are not talking about, you know, like the suspensions that's happening in our school system. For example, black boys are suspended more than any other nationality. And what I'm trying to do and Breaking Barriers is trying to do is to be a voice to find ways to improve that so we could, like, have black kids, especially black boys, um, get their education and graduate. And you mentioned mentoring and the 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 knowledge that you've gained from a number of mentors. Um, can you can you talk a bit a little bit about who those people are? Yeah, um, number one um, is Pastor Tommy McClam from Breaking Barriers Buffalo. I mean, he is a leader. He's like the father of our community. Like he like he teaches us how to, you know, love people unconditionally, how to be a active leader in our community, how to, you know, find ways to help each other as black men. Um he's a he's like a great mentor. Another mentor that I have is Daniel Robinson. Uh, Daniel Robinson, he's another person um, from Breaking Beers Buffalo. And basically, he's um, he's a real cool guy. I mean, I call Daniel Robinson the Michael B. Jordan of education. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're listening, Mr. Daniel. Yeah, guys- Tommy and Daniel, I hope you guys are listening. <laughs> Mr. Daniel, he's real cool. He makes social justice and education, like, awesome. So, honestly, I'm blessed to have him. And also, one one of my mentors, um, Mr. Eve Blanc. Uh, he's the owner of Blanc Photography. He's 
been taking me under his wing how to show me how to be a successful businessman. So if you guys need a headshot, you got to get it from the headshot king. Blanc photography, okay? <laughs> we've got a uh, we've got a few more minutes, and I've got a uh, two more questions to ask you. Um, one is um, you described yourself as you know a uh, uh, a man of God. How does your faith guide you in the work that you do? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I mean, I talked to Pastor Tommy about this, and he told me faith is believing in something that you don't see. And, I mean, when we came together a couple years ago in 2018 to start breaking barriers, I mean, there was no blueprint. There wasn't no, you know, no no game plan to help us, like, do this. We took a lot of faith. We took a lot of hard work to administer this program. And now, um, Breaking Barriers, a group that supports young black men, 12 to 24, is going to be graduating their fourth graduating class of young men of color, which is beautiful because it's not a lot of support services for us. And it's not a lot of resources that teach young men like me to be leaders. So just taking that leap of faith, just helping Tommy and Daniel um, administer this program, um, just like really was rewarding. And I honestly am proud of this amazing accomplishment. And the last thing I wanted to ask you, and it's and it's a pretty broad question, um, but from from where you're sitting, from your vantage point, what does Buffalo need? More young leaders. I mean, you adults, you guys have to give us a chance to lead. I mean, you guys have to put us in the meeting rooms. You guys have to put us in the conversations. You guys got to make us, like, get our feedback on decisions. I mean, I feel like because we're young and we don't have special titles, uh, that doesn't mean that we're not important. I think you guys have to make sure you guys, you know, train the next generation. So because, like, Let's be honest, everybody doesn't live forever. So if we could like prepare the next generation, the legacy, the progress on these projects can continue on for many years to come. So we need more young leaders um, involved in our community. So that's what I have to say. Are you hopeful things will change for the better moving forward? I mean, yeah. I mean, Buffalo is the place of good neighbors and i mean since 514 just seeing all the support services that came in the jefferson avenue community uh, was beautiful and i think this is not not just like the beginning i mean it's more things to come and i'm excited to see how the future looks for buffalo you're listening to Buffalo What's Next, Thomas O'Neill White, speaking with college student and small business owner, Malik Stubbs. Uh, Malik, I want to thank you again today for joining us. Oh, thank you. And you are listening to WBFO News from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media, WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.